I hope you know that covering your typewriter's office code for I'm done for the day. I'm not feeling so swell. Neither am I. Look at these letters you typed after lunch. Terre Haute, Indiana has two R's and an A and an E at the end. I think either you missed home row by a hand or you were out drinking with the junior account boys again. I wasn't drinking. I don't like your tone. I'll read you these right away. Look at you all in a snit. Are you going to watch me? What is wrong with you? Honestly, why is it that every time a man takes you out to lunch around here, you're, you're the dessert? That's terrible. It's constant from every corner. I'm from Bay Ridge. We have manners. Why can't they just leave it alone? Because men always bother you all the time. They follow you down the street. Well, not exactly. Look, dear, I don't know you that well. But you're the new girl, and you're not much, so you might as well enjoy it while it lasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode, the second episode of A Thing Like That Mad Men podcast. As always, hosting it is me, Mike Levito. And me, Kathleen Levito. Yeah, and we're here today to talk to you about Season 1, Episode 2, Ladies' Room. Dun, dun, dun. Written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Alan Taylor. Did I get that right? I sure did. Um, yeah, so second episode of the season, second episode of this podcast. Um, what are your first impressions of this episode? Immediately, we see in the first episode, we only see Betty for about two minutes. Mm -hmm. This episode, you were introduced to a lot of Benny, Betty. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember just being like, I hate this chick. <laughs> <laughs> like, she disappoints me so much. I, because at the end of the first episode, I wanted to root for her, right? Because she right, was being right. cheated on, despite the fact that it's John Hamm and I will love him till the day I die. Um, I was just like, I want to root for Betty. Like, I want her to be, like, the good, cool person who you feel bad for is being cheated on. And I was just like, I can't stand her. I don't know if it's her character or January Jones's acting or the way she's being directed, but I was like, she's just so flat, so boring. I can't stand her. Um, what other first impressions did I have? Um... I just like that, I mean, of course, you get to know more of the characters. You get to know um, Paul Kinsey, it is yeah. Kinsey a bit. You get to know Peggy a little bit more. You get to introduce to Joan a little bit more. Um, so overall, I actually really do enjoy this um, episode. I think it lays the groundwork for a lot of things to come. And it mostly it, re it lays the groundwork for a lot of personalities that you see develop. Um, so I, I very much enjoyed this episode. Yeah, I think it's an important episode in that it sets up the, I would say, the two most important non-Don characters in the series, which are Peggy and Betty, and it sort of dives deeper into them and sets up their storylines a bit more. It sets up sort of the Don and Betty dynamic, which is very important, um, and also, well, we can get to this later, but I feel like it's an episode where Peggy makes a choice, and it's a choice mm -hmm. that defines, I think, the rest of her arc in the series. Um, so yeah, definitely like a really important and impactful episode um in that regard i think and and also it adds the extra dynamic of it's not just about the office life now right now it brings in the domestic life as well yeah um which is also incredibly important in some cases and some episodes more interesting than the work dynamic of it so yeah cool 
We like it. All right. So let's talk about what actually happened in that episode. Um, a little less rote than last time. But we opened him in a restaurant. Um, well, they're making Roger Sterling like some like kind of martini, I guess, with an egg. I don't. No, they're making him Caesar salad. Oh. Yeah. They put. They're making the dressing. Yes. Up his, yeah. And he wants more eggs. Um, but it was a really cool shot of a guy actually cracking eggs. And then uh, at this restaurant, we have Roger Sterling, his wife Mona. Fun fact: I learned that John Slattery and the woman who plays Mona, whose name escapes me, are actually married in real life. Mm. Um, and then, of course, Don and Betty. So it's like kind of like a big, you know, kind of a big deal that the boss taking out Don for dinner and his wife. Um, Betty is very chatty. Betty and Mona are very chatty, really. That's where their personal lives. Mona reveals that Roger and her daughter Margaret is currently seeing a psychiatrist, something that's kind of, you know, taboo and a little bit new in 1960. Um, and Don, of course, keeps things very close to the chest. He does not reveal pretty much anything about himself, and he says it would ruin his novel if he did. Um, and that sort of, like, that whole first bit, that's kind of carried over, right? While they're driving, and Betty's kind of sick, um, she's like, oh, you know, it's definitely like an invitation for me to open up. He's like, no, no. I was taught it was a sin of pride if I talked about myself too much. And then as they sort of go to bed that night, Betty, and sort of, I think, maybe not one of the higher points of writing on this show, just kind of turns to him, like, sort of strokes hair and goes, who's in there? Which I think is maybe the least subtle allusion to, like, the mystery of Tom Draper ever. But kind of sets up the struggle of him as, like, an unknowable man, I think, kind of well, too. Um Meanwhile, back at the office in this very interesting sort of transition, um, editing-wise, Peggy, yes, she's talking about how glad she is that she got her first paycheck, and Joan is saying, you know, oh, you certainly look the part more, you know, you look more like a city girl now. Um, they go into the restroom, and they see Bridget, soon to be Roger Sterling's secretary, at least in past future episodes, spoiler alert, and she's just kind of crying in front of the mirror. Mirrors and bathrooms, of course, this, movie, this episode's called Ladies' Room, will become a motif. Um, meanwhile, in Don's office, the boys have just gotten the first ever aerosol cans of right guard deodorant, and they're horsing around with it, spraying each other with it. Um, you actually see a burst of flame behind Don's shoulder in a later scene. And, you know, they're probably turning into a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, before all that happens, what's his name? Oh my god. Cooper. Burr Cooper comes in. Um, the first time we see Burr Cooper, um, and he pulls out Don to talk with him and Roger about the Nixon campaign. Don's like, I think Nixon knows what he's doing. It's like, eh, I don't think so. And uh, he's like, basically trying to get him to work on the campaign. And then as Burr walks away, we see he's not wearing shoes. Interesting. Um, Joan comes over to Peggy as she's unpacking her lunch. She says her sandwich is sad. And then she's like, come on, we'll get a free lunch. She sort of like walks past walks with Peggy past a group of the guys who are kind of like this collective in this entire episode, which is, like, you know, Sal, Ken, Harry, this guy whose name I just learned is Dale. He's in, like, five episodes, but he's just a cop. I was wondering about yeah. him. he's just named Dale. He's not in very many episodes. Um, they're all sort of laughing at Pete's, uh, well, laughing, you know, chuckling, because of what Pete wrote on his postcard from Niagara Falls where he's on his honeymoon with his wife. Um, obviously I know why you go on honeymoon with someone other than your wife um, 
they take them to lunch. It is a disaster for Peggy. They just sort of very, very openly harassing her. I'm really just not... It just is terrible. I mean, she actually blushes and sort of, like, puts her hand over her mouth like she's shocked when they allude to the length of Ken's anatomy. Um, anyway, later in Austin, New York, Betty and Francine gossip about Helen Bishop, the new woman who moved to the neighborhood. She is divorced with two young children. They are worried that's going to drive down real estate prices in town. So compassionate of those two. Um, we also get introduced to Sally Draper for the first time. And she's introduced wearing a dry cleaning bag over her head. Of course, Betty doesn't care about the dry cleaning bag over her head, suffocating her daughter. She just says she'll be very upset if she finds the clothes that were in that bag strewn across the floor. Um, later, Betty is driving Sally and Bobby down the street. Um, she sees Helen unpacking boxes in the front yard, and her hands go numb. Her hands had gone numb earlier in the ladies' room. I missed the most important part of this episode. Her hands go numb in the ladies' room at the restaurant they're at with the Sterlings. And uh, Mona's like, yeah, no, that never happens to me. And this has been a thing that's been happening, Betty, apparently. Anyway, her hands go numb in the car. She crashes very low speed into a birdbath. Um, and the kids don't really care. They thought it was kind of funny. Later, we see Don and Midge, and they're sort of, you know, enjoying each other's company. Um, Don notices that she has a TV, which is unusual for Midge to have. Um, Midge, in response, throws it out the window. She's like, are you happy now? It's gone. Um, Don comes home. He and Be Betty went to the doctor. She says they found nothing physically wrong with her and that she should see, she should see a psychiatrist. Don, you know, doesn't really like that idea because he thinks that the only people who go to psychiatrists are people who aren't happy, and he is taken aback a little bit with the idea that Betty wouldn't be happy. Meanwhile, back at the office... Paul Kinsey presents his ads for the Right Guard campaign, which include ads with astronauts. You know, it's a futuristic campaign. We should be about, excited about the future. Don says, well, this ad campaign really isn't about the men, it's about the women. And what do women want? And of course, in this room full of men, they all fall tellingly silent because they have absolutely no idea. Don says, eh, I think they want a cowboy who's mysterious and dark. <laughs> um... <laughs> Don and Roger comes in afterwards. They talk about Nixon a bit more. They talk about psychiatry a bit more. Roger's kind of like, ah, psychiatry, it's a fad, you know. And you know what? Fine, Nick, you know. Just take a woman's problems and give them to someone else, basically is what he says. Very compassionate to him as well. Um, Paul is sort of despondent about his uh, copy not being accepted, so he offers to get Peggy lunch. They do. He kind of gives her a little tour around the office. And, uh, you know, it's it's a very sort of nice exchange, right? It's very friendly. Certainly not what she experienced at lunch earlier with Ken and at all. Um, Don comes home. He buys Betty a gold watch, thinking like, hey, this will make her happy. But she's still not in a good place, so he sets her up with her psychiatrist, Dr. Wayne. Uh, the next day, uh, while he brings her to the psychiatrist... Um, he goes to visit Midge, and Midge is not happy that he's mentioning his wife in front of Midge. Um, go back to Paul and Peggy in the office. Uh, they are set to go to lunch. Paul pulls Peggy into his office, tries to make out with her. She's like, no, please don't. He's like, why? She's just like, just don't. And he's like, well, there's someone else, right? She's like, yeah, sure, and then she just leaves. Um, that sets up probably the most interesting scene cinematically, where she is sitting at her typewriter typing as the song 
I Can Dream Can't type of it, Andrew's sister's plays as she is, you know, correcting correspondence and all these men just kind of walk by leering at her. Um, she decides, she, she looks at the postcard from Pete, is about to cry, she goes into the, to the restroom to cry, she sees a woman there crying, she looks at that woman, fixes her scarf, and leaves without crying. Meanwhile, Betty has an appointment uh, with the doctor, um... Don and Midge get together again. Midge says that women want to get closer when Don asks the question they're trying to figure out for the ad campaign. Don takes Betty out to dinner, and then Don comes home and calls Dr. Wayne to get information about Betty's appointment. So that's what happened. Now, what do we think it was all about? What theme do we think this episode was about what was the guiding theme for it kathleen i think we decided on self-image yes was the guiding theme mm. um and i yeah i think do you have do you want to start or should i start i i, I mean i can start sure so self-image i think yes yeah, is, is a guiding theme because a lot of this you know there's a, a motif of mirrors and of restrooms specifically women's restrooms um which you know are associated with sort of touching up right with putting on makeup of looking at each other and sort of determining what image you're going to project to the world. And I think throughout this episode, you have um, people who are very concerned with with, with how, they, how they're, what image they're projecting to the world, um, concerned with what other image people are projecting onto them and what that would say about them as well. And I think that um, it, it sort of reveals sort of the superficiality of the era these people are living in, right? On the surface, everything is dandy. There are actually numerous times where Don especially says, who cannot be happy with all of this? Referring to sort of the material wealth he's living in, to the splendor of the era, the promise of the future. And it's very clear that for Peggy and Betty, that's simply not the case. They are not happy. They are not in sort of like privileged positions. And it's it's taking a toll on them. And this theme of sort of the lie and the promise of this era the camelot era if you will the kennedy era um is kind of a guiding through the entire series right it's sort of like chipping away at this veneer of eisenhower contentment into what turns out to be very tumultuous time in american history yeah <laughs> um let's like let's break down some more of the kind of signs that show mm-hmm. what we're talking about um Again, you mentioned all of the mirrors. I think that um, the the mirror in the women's bathroom is very telling as well because it's the joke that... I mean, like, it's the long-standing joke throughout all of time that women go to the bathroom and just, like, play with their hair and do mm. all that stuff. And you see that happening in the first scene. You have this very just, like, we're being girls being girls. We put on our lipstick and all that stuff. And then um, as you turn over to the workplace, you see kind of... Um, the alternative option, which is you're crying in front of the mirror and you are showing your real self to the mirror that you don't show anyone else. Um, and then at the very end, um, and I think what's what's even more noteworthy about that is that every time Peggy sees a girl crying, she never approaches her. She tries approaching Bridget first and Joan tells her, no, don't worry about it. So it's this idea of dismissing the self, dismissing the real internal self. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, moving forward, when Peggy goes about and is about to approach that real internal self, she realizes, no, shut down. I'm going to, like, be basically, like, more cutthroat or more um, 
uh, stoic or more stone than these other girls are because I am seeing past, um, I'm seeing kind of into the structure of things and I know what I need to do in order to get by um, or even succeed. Um, let's talk about some other things. I think when we're talking about Betty going to the psychiatrist, um, they talk about obviously the stigma of psychiatry and it's very clear that when Betty is trying to convince Dawn to let her go to the psychiatrist, she's not making it like her decision or her idea because again, in her position, she wouldn't be the one necessarily making decisions other Mm -hmm. than like what to serve for dinner, that kind of thing. Anything big, how you treat the family, how you treat the household, that's going to come from the man, Don. So she really has to, you know, like cozy up to Don and be like, oh, it really doesn't have that much of a stigma Almost like incept him into it. Yeah, basically incept him into it. Um, I think it's funny that she mentions it doesn't have that much of a stigma anymore when in 2019 there's still a stigma around mental health. So it's, it's, it, it definitely was worse back then. Um, let's see, what other things did you pull out? So I, I think the Peggy thing, it, it's really interesting, right? Because like you said, there's the whole, like, the two moments when she's in the bathroom, one she tries to console Bridget, the other she looks at the crying girl and decides that that's not going to be her. I'm not going to be this crying, helpful secretary. I'm going to be something stoic and something strong and and something that, that these men can't get to me. But what I think is also interesting is sort of the way men perceive her and that how that actually does affect mm-hmm. her. For instance, when they're at lunch, they kind of talk about how they have a bet about sort of when she's going to put out and with whom. And, you know, there's, of course, that the scene where I was describing where she's typing and there are all these men leering at her. And, and sort of you can see what's going on there where it's like, what does it say about me that these men think I'm going to put mm-hmm. out? Why are they expecting of this me? What does that mean? And Joan is kind of like... She brings this up to Joan, and she, the best line, well, maybe not the best, it's a really good line. She's like, I'm from Bay Ridge, we have, we have manners there. Yeah. Um, and Joan's like, just, like, enjoy it. She even says, you're not much, just enjoy it. Yeah. So you have these people from the outside try, trying to construct the image of Peggy Olsen and who she should be, and she rejects that notion. She decides to buck those trends and buck what's expected of her. We talked about expectation the last episode. She tries to throw off that image and sort of create her own thing. Um, there's a lot of talk about the Nixon campaign. Politics are all about self-image, about crafting an image for a candidate. Um, Betty, of course, uh, her big concern after oh, the car yeah. crash is not that she could have hurt her kids necessarily, like broken limbs, killed them, whatever. Her concern is that she thought Sally had a bruise on her face and that could give Sally a scar. And, of course, a pretty girl with a scar on her face is doomed to live a very lonely unmarried single life and um i don't know if this is a spoiler but that conversation comes back several seasons later um in a similar ish form mm-hmm. um it I becomes was... a running theme for betty and really yeah. focused on appearance and superficiality there's a breaking point though yeah um to talk oh about... that's right yeah yes. to talk about a breaking point huh? <laughs> <laughs> you'll get that in a few seasons <laughs> um, to talk about dawn for a little bit um, it is a really, the fact that Don, when they're at dinner and the first scene with Roger, he's being asked very direct questions like, where did you grow up? Did you have a nanny? These things. And he's like, I'm not going to answer any of that. And it's very off-putting that he's not. It's kind of a weird, um, abrupt thing in the, in the conversation. 
And then when Betty comes home and she's like, who's in there? Which I must say, I'm going to insert my opinion in here for a second. I didn't like that scene. I It's a fine scene. I don't like it because we don't see that side of Betty ever again, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a very uncharacteristic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in their relationship and her character, I did not like it. It, mm-hmm. it felt very forced. Um, but in talking about you, throughout this episode, you understand who Don thinks he's supposed to be. When he's talking to um, the guys about the aerosol campaign... He's and they're like, oh, they want something futuristic, and he's like, no, women want a cowboy, strong, stoic, doesn't say much, doesn't do much, but always comes in to save the day, and you can see that that's who he thinks he is. He's like, I don't talk a lot, I don't do things, but people like me anyway, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm super hot. I'm John Hamm. Um, yeah, so there's that, and then yeah, he does say many times like, who wouldn't be happy with all of this, um, which does feel like a very Sal moment if we're talking about how oh Sal let's just talk about Sal again many times Sal who is not so secretly um gay gay uh comes out many times in this episode and says things like well I wish I knew what women wanted and like (laughs) all these very just lines he thinks a straight guy would say but they wouldn't say it um and that to me that um when uh when Don says, who wouldn't want all of this, feels like one of those lines uh, where it's just like he's really just outwardly just vocally kidding himself. Um. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the other thing, too, is Don tries to then construct a self-image for Betty as well, right? Um, there's a poem where he actually is like, he's like, I see you and the kids and all of this, and he actually sort of motions to her face, and he's like, and, and how couldn't you be happy, right? And his... His solution to making her happier is to buy her this, you know, white gold watch. This, like, pretty thing that will, like, make her look happier. It'll make her look nicer and shinier, but doesn't actually, you know, address the root problem. And there's a scene when... I'm going to wait for the science to go by and sneeze. I mean, she just overturned her bird bath. She just overturned her. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when Betty is in the psychiatrist's office, she takes off her watch as she's starting to like yep. speak more and more and more. So mm-hmm. the way that the scene is set up is the psychiatrist is saying nothing. It's really just this monologue by Betty. Mm-hmm. And at one point, she takes off her watch and lays it um, beside her. Yeah. Definitely, like, I know January Jones' acting gets criticized a lot on this show. I think that scene in particular, she's actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, she does a good job of being sort of, like, uncomfortable and just kind of running through all these sort of, like, acceptable, you know, uh, choice of conversation and stuff. Um, I think, you know, sort of two more minor characters in this episode. Um, Midge, right? Mm. She, um, it, it's very interesting because she's supposed to be kind of like this this liberated sort of libertine woman, right? She's She's a bohemian. She's an artist. Um, she's carrying on with a married man. She doesn't really care about society. She lives in Greenwich Village. She doesn't live in Manhattan or suburban New York. You know, she's very free. And yet we see her also constructing the self-image. She wears three different wigs throughout the course of this episode, which implies that even, you know, this liberated persona still feels some kind of pressure to put on some kind of a face. 
And the same thing when Dom brings up Betty to Midge, she says, don't, don't bring her into this. I don't want to feel cruel. The same idea of like, what image am I projecting this person carrying off the married man? What does that say about me? Um, also with Paul Kinsey, he tries to separate himself from the rest of the sort of fraternity-esque group mm-hmm. of copywriters and account men as like a bohemian, as a beatnik, right? Um, he says, dig this. He says, beyond the new. Um, he, he's supposed to be an intellectual. He smokes out of a pipe and he wears cardigans. Um, he talks about how he has a friend who works at an office where all they do is smoke weed all day and how he wishes, he, he refers to Soren Cooper as positively Cro-Magnon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he himself is also trying to put forward this image, even though we find out he's on some level just as much of a cad as Ken. So sometimes constructing the self-image is kind of a massive lie. I was going to say something. Oh, even though Pete is not in this episode physically, I think you see an image with him. If you go back to the previous episode where he's talking about how much he, um, you know, does love his the person that he's about to marry, his fiance at the time, his wife now, um, and sweet things like that. He talks to her very kindly, that kind of thing. In this episode, the... Um, postcard that he sends to the fraternity group is very lewd and it's like oh that's what they want to hear mm-hmm. you know exactly yeah, yeah. He, he's keeping up the image of a honeymoon right yeah. even though we kind of know from the first episode that he's not exactly a smooth operator yeah and he might have feelings for people other than his wife so yeah yeah any 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 other sort of like themes we can we can or i guess sort of you know, things to back up our claim that this is all about self-image. I feel like I covered most of the things. Yes. I will say, this is not about self-image, but I'm going to say it. Mm-hmm. As someone who has a syndrome that makes them lose feeling in their hands, mm-hmm. it's easier to operate a car than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first saw this, I was like, lies! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I have no comment. But, yeah. you know, it's not... She doesn't have renoids. She, yeah. she has something wrong with her psychologically, so... Yeah. Yeah. I think, just, just talking about a little more, they, when they're talking about, in the first scene, they're talking about their nannies. Um, but, uh, Roger, and we find out Betty had a nanny and all this stuff. And Don doesn't really comment on that. And we know we'll come to find out that Don did not have a nanny and did not grow up in the kind of privilege that Roger Sterling did. So that goes in more curating his, his sort of self-image. Um, and also Midge says that women want, well, they want to be closer. And that kind of defeats Don's own idealized sort of masculine ideal, right? The idea of being mysterious and aloof and sort of like this mysterious figure. Um, it runs contrary to what Midge says. is like, no, they want to be close to you. Yeah. The interesting thing I find is that Don is such a talker, right? Mm-hmm. You go into any of these meetings, he sweet talks all of his clients, goes out to dinner, sweet talks anyone he's with, and he's used to being bigger than he actually is and stop talking bigger than he actually is. But whenever he is asked about his personal life, he doesn't perform like that. He doesn't lie. He doesn't, you know, sweet talk them out of the thing. He really just stops. And he says, like, oh, it'll ruin my novel. But he really doesn't give anything away. And it's interesting to see, like, his past is, like, this point that he can't cross. It's mm-hmm. like, that's too far. That's too cutting too deep to even pretend to, like, be over it or, uh, you know, past it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, there's there's certain thresholds he will not cross. And that's one of them. 
had something else to say, but I don't know if I can remember. Oh, this is another thing that related to your, it's like kind of really related to your fingers thing, but not really. It's interesting, this whole ad campaign with the astronaut, right? Because um, the whole idea Don's objection to is that like, you're selling this to men, you should really be selling it to women who will then buy it for men. Um, Axe had an ad campaign a few years ago called Nothing Beats an Astronaut. And the idea is that it would show people doing these like incredible heroic things, um, like like the well the, like the most the one that aired a lot was that it showed at an actual basketball game. Bryce Drew, some guy who played for Valparaiso, um, and he makes a game winning shot, and everyone rushes on the court, but they rush past him and they rush to an astronaut on the mm. court. Um, and it's interesting because it made me think about sort of like deodorant and men's fragrances, like everything all together, and. Yes, that ad was about an astronaut, but it was about women swarming to an astronaut, yeah. right? And so this idea of sort of like, it's interesting because I don't know that it's sold to women so much as it's sold to men because they think it's sold to men through the perspective of being desirable to women. Yeah. The, the whole purpose is not to make yourself a better man. The purpose is to make yourself more attractive to women. And I think that's an interesting, um, it's interesting to see that kind of the parallels to that in real life. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Are we on to our spoilery section? Yeah, we are. All right. Spoilery section. Um, so, foreshadowing. Any any foreshadowing in this episode? I feel like there was less than there was in the first episode. Yeah. But there's still... I still got some stuff. Um... During the Paul and Peggy conversation, Paul says, you know, there's women copywriters, too. And Peggy goes, good ones? And he goes, well, you know, they're women. But <laughs> Peggy becomes a copywriter. Yes. Um, let me think of other ones. The uh, Betty being concerned about the, the scar. She, mm-hmm. We mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point in the season, um, Sally breaks her nose. And it's a very similar conversation Sally has with... Betty mm-hmm. about appearances. Where would mom be without her perfect nose? Yes. Um, Betty's health problems, just in kind of in general, are yeah. foreshadowing to the fact that she'll eventually have lung cancer and die. Um, also, uh, she and Francine are talking. Francine wants her to run against the head of like the PTA or whatever, and she's like, "Oh, she's focused on nutrition, but you wouldn't know to look at her." Um, of course, Betty will go through a dramatic weight gain later in the series. Um, and will also get kind of involved in politics herself when she ends up marrying Francis. Francis, um, and that's actually a, like a tension. Also point. weird, Francis and Francine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she has a type. <laughs> uh, it's actually it's a. Not only does she, she gets kind of involved in politics by marrying him, mm. but later her voice in politics becomes a tension point in their marriage. Yes, yes. Also, she goes back to school to study psychology. True. Um, also, a lot to talk about, you know, divorce and a woman living at home with two children in a house by herself and she's divorced. Betty, of course, will get divorced from Don. Remarries immediately, though. <laughs> yes, she does. Um, when they're driving home from dinner with the Sterlings, um, Betty's stomach is really bothering her. She says... Lobster Newberg and Gimlet should get a divorce. Um, but she opens up the window so she doesn't throw up. She will throw up in a later episode oh, yeah. after they go to sort of Jimmy Barrett's launch party for his TV show or whatever it is um, in one of the 
there are two episodes that end with someone vomiting on this show, and that's one of them. <laughs> Paul mentions that he's into the Twilight Zone, he's into sci-fi, he'll end up writing a spec script for mm-hmm. um, Star Trek later on. Um, I the, would die without the Twilight Zone. Wasn't that the line? <laughs> it was because they mentioned they're going to take it off the air, and he's like, I die. Yeah, it's something like that. Um, Don, when he's at dinner with Betty, just the two of them, he mentions um, that there are people who are who have unlisted numbers and they're being charged for them now. He's trying; they're trying to hide and a lot of drama around the telephones. That'll become later. Francine's husband; she discovers sort of large telephone oh, bills totally that, that um, he's been using to call his mistress in New York. And then also Roger Sterling talking about his daughter. He says he wants to make women's problems some other man's problems. Boy, will his daughter's problems become another man's problems when she marries Brooks and runs around, to, runs away to a hippie commune uh, in, like, the last season. So, yeah. A- any other foreshadowing? Uh, that's all I remember. Cool. Let's, uh, let's let's segue into our awards now. Our first award, of course, is the Peter Campbell Memorial Worst of the Week. Um, who We didn't talk about this beforehand. Who were you going to give this award to? I would nominate Paul. Yeah, I think so, yeah. too. I was going to say maybe just, like, the men in the office in general, but I think Paul stands out because he's so nice to Peggy early on, and you're like, this could be a great friendship. This could be a relationship. Yeah, I was rooting for them in this episode. And then he just kind of turns heel and and tries to pressure and her into sex, basically. And uh, it in his his reaction, I was reading Matt Zorsites' book about Matt and Carousel, and is not his. He's confused. He's like, well, if you're not taken by somebody, you should be taken by me. Is sort of his attitude throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, the, the lie of his behemoth exterior. He's just like all of them. Uh, our other award is the Roger Sterling Best Line of the Week Award. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not a line, it's an exchange. Peggy knocks on Paul's door. Paul goes, Bienvenue. And Peggy goes, No, it's Peggy. She doesn't know how to speak French, apparently. You know, also interesting for just saying how she's not as continental as the other girls, right? Um, all right, so that does it for all our pre-planned segments. Any, uh, any other thoughts on this episode? No. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I think I, like, I do enjoy this episode, but it reminds me both what I love about this, what, about the show in general and what I don't like about the show in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It feels a little thinner than more sort of, like, it, I, to me it's like, it's a... We'll get episodes later in the series that are very much about, like, one character and Dawn's yeah. storyline is kind of, like, pushed aside a little bit. And that's definitely this episode. I think the ones we get later on are more interesting. Yeah. Um, again. It, it's, the, like, the second. Exactly. It's the second episode. Um, so there's there's still, it's still yet to reach the heights it reaches. But I think a, a definitely, like, an important, definitely, like, an important expansion of the scope of the show um, and to have that happen in the second episode is yeah. kind of impressive. All right. Thanks so much for listening um, to A Thing Like That, a Mad Men podcast. Um, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts. Um, 
I assume will be up there soon. I haven't even edited the first episode yet, but um, I'm Mike Levito. You can follow me on Twitter at mlevito, and I'm on Letterboxd as a Maramike. Uh, my name is Kathleen Levito, and you can find me on Instagram at Rise to the Sun. Thanks so much for listening, um, and until then, steer clear of those bird baths. Have a good one. <laughs>